0: Skip, Anna. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Jim. Uh, we're going to have a look at Isaiah chapter 6 today. I wonder if you've ever had the feeling of impending doom. Um, you know the Peanuts cartoon? Uh, Linus has that feeling. In fact, Linus has that feeling more than once in the cartoons. And it's interesting that uh, such a dark idea would turn up in a comic On multiple occasions. It turns out that the author Charles Schultz also had this feeling of impending doom and he said that that feeling never really left him so it's a pretty uh, hard way to live your life, always feeling like something really bad is going to happen. Um, But that was him. Uh, For most of us it's not like that but perhaps uh, apparently people who are having a heart attack or suffering from an anaphylactic attack uh, when that's happening. They might not really understand what's going on but somehow they sense that something really bad might be about to happen and uh, it's that feeling of impending doom. Now, in today's reading, we see Isaiah has that very same feeling. Uh, We're going to have a little look at that today. Uh, Before we get to that, uh, we just need a little bit of context because um, we're in chapter 6, and you might think that the book of Isaiah would start with the calling of Isaiah, but actually we have five chapters of material beforehand, and the calling of Isaiah is placed after that. So it We have five chapters where we we see the problem before we see God's solution. And I just want to give you a very quick rundown of the problem. You have a photograph today of modern-day Jerusalem. Uh, And in the foreground you see the temple. That is the temple that Herod built, that the disciples talked about being, this is an amazing big temple, wow, how glorious is this? And Jesus said it's not going to last too long, and it didn't. Um, And uh, it was knocked down in AD 70 by the Romans and... uh, uh, much, uh, much after that, that blue building with the gold dome, the I think it's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, that particular place in the world is not only the holiest site in Judaism, it's the third holiest site in Islam, in exactly the same spot. And if you wonder why the, uh, the, the problems in the Middle East are complex, that's part of the reason why they're so complex. Um, but in Chapter 1, uh, God is describing... Uh, his feelings about the people of Israel at the time and he described uh, the nation of Israel and in particular the city of Jerusalem the capital city uh, as being the faithful city under King David this is the place in all the earth where the God of the universe Yahweh is actually worshipped everywhere else worships other gods this is the one place where God is worshipped and it was the faithful city but it wasn't long before it became the unfaithful city and The Bible often uses quite strong language to describe uh, the unfaithfulness of God's people and in this case uh, the the city is described as being a whore. Um, And the idea is that uh, they've been unfaithful to the covenant. Uh, They've broken the covenant they had with God and they're worshipping other gods. Uh, And the big idea in the book of Isaiah is that uh, God is going to deal with the fact that his people are unfaithful. But beyond that, How is he going to make the city faithful again? And you see in verse 26, And afterwards you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So they had been the faithful city and they had become the unfaithful city and they were going to be judged for that. But beyond that, how is God going to make the city faithful again? And well, the call of Isaiah is part of the answer to that. And we see uh, in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah, not Isaiah, Died. Well, that year was apparently 742 BC, and this may simply be providing a timeline so we know when it happened, but it's probably not the case. Um, uh, It's probably really referring to the, uh, drawing our attention to the political situation, so that the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, um, had had 52 years of uh, peace and relative prosperity under King Uzziah, and now he had died, and a new king was coming, and the people were probably wondering what will the future bring under our new king. And the nation of Assyria uh, was rising as a superpower and all the nations around were wondering you know, what kind of threat is this nation posing to us and what are we going to do about it. It's in that context that Isaiah has this vision of Israel's true king. They might have a new earthly king but Israel's true king is still on the throne. Um, God appears uh, above the temple and his heavenly throne. So you have this really interesting sight. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple. Is this in heaven or is it on earth? Well, actually, it's both. God's heavenly throne and God's earthly throne, the, the temple, they become one in Isaiah's vision. Whether he's actually at the temple at the time, we don't know. He sees the temple. He sees God's heavenly throne above the temple, and they're merged into one. The place of God's heavenly rule and his earthly rule become one. And God is glorious, and Isaiah tries to describe the glory that he sees. God is wearing a robe which is probably made of light, the text doesn't actually say, but in Psalm 104, 2, uh, which is also in that Chris Tomlin song that we like, says he wraps himself in light, I think, uh, and darkness tries to hide. The, uh, Isaiah, uh, sorry, Psalm 104 says he wraps himself in light as with a robe. Uh, so the robe's probably made of light, and the robe fills the temple. And just to be clear, it's not, it doesn't fill the bit where that mosque is, the robe fills the whole temple area. It's not filling the Holy of Holies where God reigns. The robe is filling the temple. God is big. And the Jews sometimes, because God literally dwelt in the Holy of Holies, which is actually not a particularly big room, there was a a risk that um, that people might think that God is not big. And sometimes in the Old Testament, God reminds his people, actually, yes, I, I do live there, but I'm a lot bigger than that. I made the world Uh, I hold the universe in my hands, I am big. And this is a bit like that, that Isaiah sees this vision of a very big and glorious God and the bottom of his robe fills the whole temple. And there are also seraphim. Uh, They're standing above him and each had six wings. Uh, What are the seraphim? Well, the word literally means burning ones and so that's probably describing what Isaiah sees as Creatures that appear to be fiery, Um, but they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, They're widely considered to be angels, but we don't actually know that for sure. These fiery creatures are worshipping God and they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, our attention is being drawn to God's holiness. It's repeated three times Holy, holy, holy. Uh, In modern Australian society, holiness gets a pretty bad rap. Holiness is generally considered to be a bad thing and it's associated often with people who don't know how to enjoy themselves. That's not what holiness is about. Holiness is a very good thing. The world is a pretty messed up place. There's a lot of ugliness in the world. That's unholiness and the world would be a lot better without it and God has none of that in him, none of that unholiness. He is holy. He is completely good he is completely trustworthy and he loves unconditionally he is holy and our attention is being drawn to that and and when isaiah sees god he sees that holiness of god and god is identified as the lord of hosts which is not a term that's used that often in the old testament but it's referring to the heavenly host that God has his own armies. And at this time, the Assyrian army was rising. There had been for some time one superpower, that is Egypt, and now there was a rising superpower. In our world today, the world's had a superpower for a long time. That's the United States of America. And now there's a new superpower rising, and that's China. And many countries, including our own, are wondering what kind of threat does the new superpower pose and what are we going to do about it? Well, that's exactly what the nation of Israel and the other nations around were doing at that time, all the politicians were going, this rising power of Syria, what kind of a threat do they pose to us and what are we going to do about it? Do we need a treaty with Egypt? And God is saying, don't worry about that army of Assyria and don't worry about that army of Egypt. I've got my own army. And it's a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than those armies and you should be thinking about me and my army. And uh, Isaiah condemned the leaders of the nation of Judah for wanting to make treaties with Egypt and, and looking for Egypt for reassurance instead of from God. And it's unclear which part of the temple was shaking. We get down to where it says the foundations of the doorways shook. Not quite sure which part of the temple that was. But the idea is we don't have a quiet, peaceful, and lovely scene here where harps are playing and speak, people are speaking gently. The voice of the seraphim is a booming voice that makes the temple shake. This is a scary scene. Now dreams feel real at the time. Isaiah is having a vision, a dream. You go, it's not real. But when, I don't know whether you've ever woken from a bad dream and your heart is pounding and you might be sweating. When you're having the dream, it seems just as real as reality. And that's what's happening to Isaiah. Yes, it's a vision, but it seems real at the time. And he is experienced. He's come into God's presence. He's in the presence of a holy God. And you might think that's a cool thing. Maybe you could go and you could hang out with God and maybe uh, young people of this generation would grab out their phone... And God, Yahweh, could you just stay there? Could you smile? And you two guys, could you just get a little close? And we'll do a selfie because, wow, this is so cool. I've got to show all my friends. Yeah, it's not that kind of experience. It's a completely different experience that Isaiah has. He gazes upon God and he sees his moral perfection. God is pure and beautiful. And Isaiah senses the difference in purity between God and himself. There's actually no words spoken here. God does not say anything to Isaiah. Isaiah just knows. It's a bit like when you get a white shirt. You buy a white shirt and over time that shirt slowly gets less and less white and you don't notice until you put it up against a really white shirt and then you go, oh my goodness, my shirt is filthy. That is what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah. You see, Isaiah It's likely that hanging around with his friends and his family, he thinks, I'm a pretty good person. I'm as good as this person. I'm as good as that person. I'm a lot better than that person. I'm a pretty decent person. But now he's come into the presence of a person who really is good. God. And he feels very dirty because he is dirty. And this is where his feeling of impending doom comes. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. He's come into the presence of a truly good person, God. He's realised that he is anything but good. I am a man of unclean lips. And I have seen the king. Woe is me, for I am Ruined. He's expecting something really bad to happen. He probably thinks he's going to die because he has come into the presence, the immediate presence of holiness, and he is unholy. And he's particularly conscious of the uncleanness of his lips, which is strange. I imagine that his heart was pretty unclean and his actions were pretty impure as well, but he has been made aware of the uncleanness of his lips. And it may be because he's about to be called as a prophet and he's going to be the spokesperson for God and the spokesperson for God really ought to speak in a certain way. And he's probably aware that he doesn't and neither does his people. Um, He's conscious of the uncleanness of his lips. And at the confession of his sin, uh, one of the seraphim flew over with a coal from the altar and uh, touches his lips and says, now your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. We have this illustration of the mercy of God and you'll see how much Isaiah contributes to it and that is nothing. Isaiah contributes nothing to his atonement. It is the grace of God and it is the work of heaven Isaiah does nothing except confess his sins. And then it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. I feel like he put his hand up. It doesn't it's not in the text, but I'm sure he puts his hand up and says, here I am, send me. Um, I'm a high school teacher, and I love teaching Year 7. They're still kids. They still know how to have fun. In Year 8, they're too cool for everything. But um, I used to teach at Covenant Christian School Year 7, and I just did this thing every year with my Year 7 class. I would say, I need a volunteer. And I would never tell them what they were volunteering for. And they, le- they learned this pretty quick. But, uh, and I'd always get half the class would put their hand up. And I'd say, you know that you don't know what you're volunteering for, and they'd still keep their hand up. Most of the time they were just volunteering for the normal things that teachers would volunteer for. But to make it interesting, sometimes I would actually make them do hard things so that they were a bit nervous when they volunteered. And um, certainly one time I made them, uh, said, you've got to go out in the playground and you've got to run around saying, I love science, I love science, at the top of your voice. And so they went down to the playground and they're running around saying, I love science, because I'm a science teacher. Um, and unfortunately for them, the deputy principal came out at the staff room right then yelled at them and they copped it but uh, so I hid (laughs) and they, they, they bore the brunt of that and that was part of the fun you see they volunteered, they didn't know what they were volunteering for and that's what seems to be happening to Isaiah God has not said Isaiah now that I've forgiven you I've got a job for you and this is what you've got to do God calls out to the heavenly court who can I send, I need a volunteer and Isaiah says here I am, send me, I don't know what The job is, but I'm ready to go. And it seems like having been made aware and having felt to his very bones his uncleanness and having had this sense that he deserves God's wrath and he's probably going to die and then having received mercy from God, having contributed absolutely nothing to it himself, he's ready to do whatever God wants him to do. And then God explains the job to him, as I sometimes did with my year sevens, and say, actually, this is what you've got to do, and you can't chicken out now. And it's a pretty tough job for Isaiah. He's perhaps thinking that it's going to be fun, that having repented of his own sins, that he's going to go to the people of Israel, and he's going to tell them that they need to repent. And on mass they're going to repent, and they're going to say, thank you, Isaiah, thanks for calling us to repentance. You are the best. But that is not what he's being called to. Instead, it says, Go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now, the language here is quite difficult. It does sound like, the people of Israel are quite a good bunch of people who might have it in their hearts to repent and God is determined that they're not going to. That's what the language sounds like. God is not like that at all. The Bible says in many, many places that God desires not the death of a sinner, but that he turned from his wickedness and live, and that he wants all people to be saved. So we need to understand the Bible in the context of the Bible. God is not a God who wants people to not be saved. And the Bible is also pretty clear that the people of Judah were not like that either. They were not a people who were ready to repent. Their hearts were hard and they had been hard for some time. In fact, it says in one part of Isaiah, God says, I am weary of relenting. Uh, You know, when you're a parent and you are disciplining your children and you know there have to be consequences, because if there's no consequences, then that never goes well. But you don't want to have to dish out the consequences and so you threaten, if you do this, this is going to happen then when it comes to it, then you don't want to do it because you love your kids. God is like that with his people and he said, if you guys keep worshipping other gods and if you keep oppressing the powerless, I'm going to have to deal with it. But he would keep relenting and waiting a little longer and the people started to take that for granted and they just thought... God's never going to do it and their hearts were hardened and we need to understand this not as God saying this is what I want to happen but as God telling Isaiah this is what is going to happen. I'm afraid you are not going to be well received, you are not going to be thanked for your ministry. On the whole, people are not going to listen. Yes, there will be some who repent but many will not and Jesus quoted this passage, he had the same experience and Paul quoted this passage. He had the same experience that many of the Jews did not repent. Uh, Now, this is actually verses 11 to 13, not 9 to 10. Uh, Isaiah seems to have got the message that this is going to be a tough ministry and not well received. And he says, uh, until when? How long do I have to do this, God? This is hard. And he gets a tough answer. Until cities lie in ruins, without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate and the Lord drives the people far away leaving great emptiness in the land. They're not going to repent, Isaiah. You're going to have to keep preaching until the city is destroyed, until the land is empty and until most of the people are taken, the ones who are not killed and most of the population of Jerusalem was killed, will be taken away to exile to Babylon. That's how long you're going to have to preach for. There is a small sign of hope that Ed uh, alluded to in his family spot. Uh, and uh, God gives an illustration. He illustrates the people of Israel and particularly the city of Jerusalem as it's, it's being like a fruit tree. And fruit trees bear fruit and we want good fruit. And Jerusalem used to be that. It was a, it was a tree that bore good fruit. But now it was bearing Bad fruit. It had become diseased and sick as a nation and it was bearing bad fruit. And sometimes uh, if you've if you got fruit trees, you can spray all kinds of sprays on them and try to keep the pests away and the disease, try and get rid of the disease. But sometimes a disease can become endemic and all you can do is cut the tree down. And that's the picture. That Israel as a nation and Jerusalem in particular was so spiritually sick that there was nothing for it but to cut it down. But there was a sign of hope that, as you see in the picture there, that uh, and as Ed talked about, that when you cut a tree down, well, the roots are still in the ground. And the tree can still come back. My uh, In my uh, front yard, when I was a kid, we had a gum tree, and it was tall, probably about 10 metres tall, and one day my parents decided to cut it down and it chopped it down, and then they left about that much above the ground and you know what happened of course it grew back uh, and it ended up being just as big as ever that's the way that trees are and that's the picture that yes there's going to be a severe judgment and for the people at that time that was probably the focus of their or ought to have been the focus of their attention that something really truly horrible was going to happen but beyond there beyond the judgment for that unfaithfulness how was God going to make the city faithful again well he was going to save a remnant And he was going to start again. And uh, the book of Isaiah goes on to talk a lot about how God is going to make the city faithful again. Right, well, how can we apply that for ourselves? The Bible teaches that like Isaiah, we are all going to stand before God one day. But it's not going to be a vision. It's going to be for real. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgement. No reincarnation, no second attempts. We live one life, then we're called to give an account of our life. I wonder what you think it's going to be like when you stand in the presence of God to give an account of your life. I was at the commissioning service for the Lovells a few weeks ago and there was a great message delivered by a young man whose name I forget. Um... And he talked at one point about us having irrational fears. And we might have irrational fears of cockroaches or irrational fears of spiders. Some of us have irrational fears of heights and others of us have irrational fears of small spaces. But he said that many of us have an irrational lack of fear. We have an irrational lack of fear of God. It's strange that a person can be scared of a cockroach but not of God. You'd be scared of a small spider, but not of God. That is irrational. If you're going to be scared of anyone or anything, we ought to be scared of God who made the universe. But many of us are not. We simply refuse to accept God's judgments. And we can do that now, but not on the final day. There are many commandments and uh, Jesus summarised them into two. And the two commandments, that, if you can obey these, you've got nothing to fear. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus said that's all you have to do. And it makes sense to me that we should have to love God with our hearts, whole heart, soul, strength and mind because he did create everything and he did create you and me and every good gift that comes into my life has come from him. I should love him with my whole heart. But I don't. And it also makes sense to me that I ought to love my neighbour as myself because you matter just as much as I do. Your life is worth as much as mine. So I ought to love you as much as I love myself. But I don't. There's not a moment of any day when I reach this target. Because we are people with an irrational lack of fear of God, he spells it out for us. In uh, Romans chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you, think, because if you compare yourselves to your friends and family and you say, I'm a pretty good person, God's going to accept me. The Bible tells you that on that day it is not going to be like that. When you come into the presence of real goodness, that is God, you are going to know that you are unclean. And the Bible tells you now, God is kind enough to tell you now, that that's how it's going to be. When you have time to do something about it. That you and I, we fall short the The target is a reasonable target, but we are not made of the stuff to do it. That's the bad news. The bad news is that we stand in the path of God's righteous anger. But the next verse gives us the good news. The good news is that there is a way of escape, and that is the cross of Christ. Paul goes on to say they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news is that he's made a way of escape. God's righteous anger at human rebellion was poured out on God the Son at his crucifixion. The holy and blameless Son of God stands in our place and bears the penalty for sin so that we may be justified before God. He finds no fault with those who put their trust in Jesus because the penalty for our sin has been paid. You may have heard this expression, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And this idea is put beautifully in the most famous of hymns, Amazing Grace. It says, "twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It's human nature to not fear God. And the first thing that God does is to put that fear in our heart, that fear that we ought to have of God, that God is our judge. And we fall short of the mark. It's God's grace that teaches us to fear him. And then it is God's grace that teaches us that we no longer need to fear him if we put our trust in Jesus. The dreadful fear of judgment may be replaced by love for our saviour, joy and peace in our hearts. Have you understood your unworthiness before God? Have you ever really felt it as Isaiah did? Are you ready to put your trust in Jesus and receive God's forgiveness? Now on the surface, the text that we're looking at today might seem to be about the willingness of Isaiah to go and the application might be to ask you, are you willing to go? Where are you willing to go? What are you willing to do? But this text is not about Isaiah. It's about God and what he is doing. God had a plan to save the whole world from their sins. And he would send his own son to be born as one of us. But how could we know what his plan was? And how could we know who the anointed one was? He would need to tell us beforehand, and for that, he would need a spokesman, a prophet. Amos 3.7 says, Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. Don't overread the word nothing. But God wants us to know his plans. So that when we see it, we know that that's what God was doing. And so he reveals it to the prophets beforehand. You know, it's December already. Christmas is nearly upon us. Carols is on Thursday. And each Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Christians believe that he is God's divine son and appointed saviour king. Can we be sure that these claims are true? Can you be sure that those claims are true? We can. And we can because God revealed his plan to the prophets who declared it to the world. So much of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus was foretold by the prophets that you can be sure that he is the way for you to be reconciled to God and to inherit eternal life. So you know we like to talk about next steps here. So I wonder what your next step might be. Well, that will depend on where you are in the faith journey. So I've got a few questions for you help you work out where your might step what your next step might be have you understood who Jesus is can you see that the prophets were pointing to him as God's appointed saviour have you you recognised your unworthiness before God and accepted his offer of salvation well if not is that your next step And is today the day for it? And if that is your next step, and if you're ready to do that today, uh, I'm going to be hanging around here after the service. You can come and talk to me, or you can talk to Luke or Abe or any Christian that you trust. Uh, There's no need for you to be concerned about the day of judgment. God wants you to to have assurance of salvation. Have you understood what Christmas is really about? Do you see that it's a time to reflect on the most momentous event in human history, the incarnation of God? Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The baby born in a manger in Bethlehem is the saviour of the world. Is your next step making Christmas more than a holiday and a family catch-up? And for those who've already taken those steps, how might you encourage others to celebrate Christmas in this way too? Happy Christmas, St Mark's.